You're listening to a podcast by the BCG Henderson Institute, BCG's Think Tank. In this series, hosted by fellow Dave Young, we'll interview business leaders and explore how companies can build competitive advantage by creating a sustainable world. Now on to our episode. Mark, welcome to Building Competitive Advantage in a Sustainable World. And Mark, to begin, could you please introduce yourself and Grobner to our listeners? Sure. So my name is Mark Preston. I'm executive trustee, which is probably best translated to be chief executive of Grosvenor, which is the privately owned property and food and ag and farming and alternatives investment business owned by the Grosvenor family, who's headed up by the Duke of Westminster. We are a trustee owned organization. So the family have entrusted the legal ownership in the hands of trustees many, many years ago. The beneficial ownership remains in the hands of a fairly narrow beneficiary class, actually. The Grosvenor family is not a broad, large group of people. So the Duke of Westminster is the principal beneficiary, and he's highly visible in the organization. The organization has around $15 billion of assets under management. Most of that is in commercial property. It's fairly well spread geographically and sectorally, but I won't go into that because that's not particularly relevant for this conversation. I think the thing that fascinated me so much about Grosvenor is just that long history and heritage and legacy. And if you could talk a, a little bit about that as well, that is unusual for many of the companies that yeah. people are governing today. Just firstly, the activity. I mentioned largely commercial property. The reason it's largely commercial property is historic. The Grosvenor family effectively married into ownership of a big chunk of central London. There's a variety of fascinating art and other chattels that a family of Grosvenor's longevity uh, in the UK typically might have. And just to talk a bit about the history, the first Grosvenor came over with William the Conqueror, French name, Grosvenor, literally means great hunter. Indeed, the first Grosvenor, Hugh Grosvenor, was William the Conqueror's huntsman, basically. And he obviously was a very good huntsman because he was granted land in the northwest of England, Welsh borders, some of which is still owned today, a thousand years later. A lot of that became mining business in the, I suppose, the 16th and 17th centuries. And as I said earlier on, it, it was the marriage into uh, another family, Mary Davis, in the early 1600s, which brought the property side into the family. So that's that's a bit of, a bit about the family. And it's, very, it's, it's relevant in so many ways, and we'll probably keep coming back to this during this conversation. But essentially, it, that length of history and that long-established nature of the family creates a long-termism that is pretty unique, even among long-term private family owners. This family really do look multi-multi-multi-generational in the way they think about their investments and their responsibilities. I've been at Grosvenor for 33 years, all of my career, in fact. I'm a property professional by background. I've worked overseas in San Francisco, where we have a North American property business, and in Hong Kong also. And I've been lucky enough to move around the business and continue to move up and one day found myself with this job. This must be a huge sense of stewarding something special like Grosvenor and, and in your role as, as trustee. I mean, how do you think about purpose and what binds the group together? What gives it that sense of the future? And how does that inform what you do as a leader? How do you sort of, as a CEO, kind of factor that into the way you think about strategy and leading the organization and making decisions? Yeah. Well, I think it's probably apparent from some of the things I've just been saying that it informs everything I do all of the time very strongly. And 
you use the word stewarding, which I think is an excellent word, actually, in, in, in the Grosvenor sort of language. It is, in fact, a key word, which is a word we've used for a long, long time at Grosvenor as being the role that the organization feels it has in society and more narrowly in, in the business world. And I think it is all about leaving things better than we found them, handing things over to the next generation in good shape, doing the right thing by the communities in which we occupy. This has always been part and parcel of how the family thinks about its role in society, which is very relevant to our business, because ultimately this is this business is all about the Grosvenor family and, and ensuring their reputation is enhanced and grows over time. And that's so relevant, of course, to the sustainability agenda. There's a Latin expression, which I don't know how well it translates to some of your audience, Dave, but noblesse oblige, which literally translated means, you know, with position comes responsibility. And that is how the family think about their business. They have a privileged position and they understand that the implications and the consequence of, of that privilege are that they have a responsibility. This isn't even discussed. It's a simple understood concept for not only the Grosvenor family, actually, but other long established families who've had land and property ownership in, in, in the family for many, many generations. Okay, now we express our purpose in modern terms as being about balancing commercial and social and environmental benefits, etc. But it's the same thing. I mean, it's the same thing as the stewardship. It's ultimately born out of that same view around what we owe to the community and putting things back and making sure they're better, better when we leave them. And that's fundamentally the definition of sustainability after all. One of the reasons that I was so interested in Grosvenor was because that overarching purpose across that diversity of portfolio against that long legacy of a business and the ambition to see it forward, I think brings a certain a way that you folks are thinking about sustainability that many aspire to. Because we often talk about the challenge of bringing the two S words of business together, strategy and sustainability. And for many, the challenge is driven by emphasizing the short term at the expense of what uh, the business would do to take a position that will add value for its stakeholders over the long run. And it seems that your history, the types of projects, your ambition for sustainability actually allow you to wrestle with that connection between sustainability and business differently than many do, or at least let's say actually have to wrestle with it very deeply in ways that I think many executives would love to be able to do, but find the short-term market pressures preventing. Maybe, Mark, could you share a little bit more, you know, what your experience has taught you sure. about integrating sustainability and strategy and why that's proven powerful? Dave, you've flattered me yet again by the degree of your understanding of Grover and how much time and, and effort you've taken to understand us, because you've said it more eloquently than I could, really. It is exactly as you describe it. We've worked very hard on purpose, but in a sense, we already had that because it's so steeped in the history of the organization. Everybody's got to have at least that in order to be able to address this sustainability question. But it doesn't work, in my mind, unless you are also thinking about the timescale. And so, as you rightly say, it's the combination of the purpose and the long-termism, what I'll call long-termism, farsightedness, another way of putting it, that makes it possible to have the great luxury, as you quite rightly say, the great good fortune of being able to think about sustainability in a way that for some, it's quite challenging. And I'm afraid to say that I think unless you've got that long-term piece, then it's very difficult because I don't have any difficulty or tussle or challenge or conflict with the cost and time and effort involved in the sustainability actions we're taking 
because I know that we're looking at everything through a long-term lens and because I'm absolutely confident that time will tell and we'll be able to demonstrate that in the long term we're getting value for those things. If I didn't have shareholders and an organization who was looking at long-term metrics, that would be a lot more difficult. It might even be impossible. And so I suppose to your listeners, I think the challenge probably is that if you don't already have in your shareholders and governance structure a means by which to look at this through a long-term lens, then I think you need to try and find one. And to persuade your investors, if I can put it broadly, that actually it's in their interest that you do approach it in that way. And I would also go further and say that given the huge changes that are going on in, in, in the world in this space, that actually there will be value, in, even in the exit of whatever it is that's being created, there'll be a discounted value at the end of the 10 years to whatever it is that's been created of a sustainable nature. So I'm very confident that actually even your most short-termist of listeners who aren't fortunate enough as I am to have a very long-term family who are absolutely demanding that I look at things through the long-term lens, even they, I think, can make a very good argument to their funders, backers, et cetera, that that actually the long-term lens is the way to, to look at this. And I think once that lens is in place, then, as you rightly intimated, the sort of tussles and the challenges largely fall away, and it becomes actually surprisingly easy strategically to get your arms around. It's still very difficult to implement it, and that is very challenging and difficult and untested and involves a lot of experimenting. But I think it it, it is the, the route through which to be able to, to open the doors to this as, a, as, a, as, a, as an S plus S, to merge S and S in, in your language. Yeah. And Mark, I've had the privilege of meeting a number of your executive team and also having the chance to listen to you and addressing them. And for our listeners, I mean, the one thing I, I would emphasize, you folks are incredibly performance oriented. So I don't want anybody to sort of get the impression that, oh, you know, that luxury of taking a long-term perspective means we are less focused on performance in the near term. I actually found you to be quite ambitious in creating that challenge for the organization to deliver at the highest level of commercial performance while also trying to do some of these things. And of course, that is part of my job to make sure that we do get that balance right. The way we do it, Dave, briefly, as you've observed, is to have essentially a two-tiered altitude, whereby the lower altitude is driven by annual budgets and and five-year targets and cost of capital to be exceeded over certain periods and returns targets, just as you might see in in different shorter-term organizations. And then then a higher altitude, a longer-term, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, even 50-year plan. And it's by working those two together that I think we've been able to keep people's feet to the fire on the immediate commercial need to deliver a return, which absolutely, you're quite right, Dave, that's a very important part of what we're here to do, while at the same time marching to a drumbeat that's a longer-term one when it comes to some of the higher-level strategic things. Mark, I'd like to turn to a couple of the lines of business that you're in to get sort of some of your thoughts and perspectives. What I would like to do is is just talk about this emphasis on improving property and places. And, you know, there's been a significant amount of research into the importance of sort of place-based strategies and approaches for sustainable communities and social development. And I can imagine all aspects of ESG show up in smart placemaking and in, you know, sort of how you think through the trade-offs in the built environment. Mark, how's Grosvenor approached these place-based strategies and, and sort of the holistic considerations of sustainability and, and sort of what is the link to commercial outcomes? And maybe if you could, is there an example that you think is particularly vivid 
in that property portfolio. How have we approached these place-based strategies? With humility, I think is probably the first thing I would say. We are having to experiment a lot. I think the property industry, the real estate industry is not known, let's face it, is not known to be innovative. It hasn't had to be innovative, actually. The way I'm fond of putting it is the property industry has had the great good fortune to be able to take person A who owns property and bolt it together with person B who wants to occupy it by something called a lease. And that business model has really not changed at all. And we haven't had to innovate. Well, now we do. And I think, you know, it's not only because of the climate change emergency, but it's also because of digital technology that's caused the property industry to wake up and realize that it needs to start to focus on this. And so I think experimenting and becoming a bit more innovative is now very much the name of the game for, and we're catching up, bluntly. The other thing, I think, moving on to the second part of your question is that we're beginning to measure those things which do have a link between you know, placemaking and, and, and creating interesting and attractive areas to performance. And I think, to quote you, Dave, on some advice you gave us, we're, we're being quite rigorous now about separating the sorts of things which do have a link to the business and the sort of things that, to quote you, are good Samaritan activities, which are great to do, but actually don't really have, have a link to the business. So we're trying to focus much more on measuring that first category of things. And frankly, it's still very early days. There aren't many people who've cracked it, I don't think. We're open-minded as to how we go about it. So with humility and with experimentation. I wonder if maybe for our listeners, is there a particular project in the property area that really stands out to you as representing oh, yeah. sort of the aspiration that you would like to see across the portfolio over time? On the property side, I particularly pick out public realm, by which I mean the ability to be able to use spaces between buildings for public good, whether it be, it could be anything from biodiversity to community orientated uses, tree planting, I mean, these kinds of things. And we're, we're fortunate enough in, in the kind of property portfolio we have, particularly in London, where we do actually have quite a lot of that, of that open space, which has historically been rather neglected. Why has it been neglected? Well, because putting capital into it hasn't delivered a return. And this is where the long-term perspective comes in again, because you know, if we were to spend significant money on, I mean, let's take something that has a US connection, Grosvenor Square, where the US embassy is currently located or has been located, it's moving, as you some of you will know. Big square in central London, not very interesting at the moment, just a bit of grass with some pathways. Well, actually, We've got big plans for that for that square. And in the past, it would have been very difficult to see how we could justify putting much of an investment in there, into that square. We now understand that actually by improving the area and the environment, you know, guess what? You bring more people and more activity, and over time it becomes a more attractive place to be. And that has spillover benefits into the neighboring properties. That does require you to have a portfolio of scale. If you look at Grosvenor's property strategy, we are looking increasingly towards a minimum scale and what we call integrated places that are connected with the environment rather than just single buildings that are set down as if they were from Mars in an environment where they have no particular interconnectedness. That's what we're focused on. I really like that example, Mark, because I think, you know, the analog that I would use is many people sort of see sustainability as confined to the walls of whatever description of the business they've had historically. And sometimes the biggest sustainability propositions are those that sort of extend the boundaries, just as you're thinking, you know, it's not just the building here, it's the spaces. And even when those spaces are adjacent and aren't going to be covered up with some sort of built structure, you can still think of them as part of the integrated value proposition that you're able to deliver. And of course, is if you put that lens 
on all of the social and environmental factors that one could conceive by using that space, in my mind, it makes Grosvenor a very thoughtful partner if I'm pursuing a project and I want somebody to engage with uh, as an investor in that project, you would have understanding in doing that that others would not. So uh, I, I think it's a very clever example. Mark, one of the things that surprised me when I first became familiar with your group was the whole push into food and ag tech. It's sort of an entirely different sort of sustainability story and very exciting to see that and your investments in, in basically the food and ag tech space. Could you talk a little bit about how that came about and maybe your vision for it over time? Sure. This came about 12 years ago, I suppose, when the trustees, I think the shareholders of the business, when I say trustees, discussed with the Duke, actually it was the Duke's father who since died, the late Duke who died in 2016, what areas of additional diversification were thought to be attractive for us to pursue, recognizing that although we loved real estate and it had served us very well, and it was always going to be the dominant part of the Grosvenor portfolio, it was perhaps a bit too dominant, frankly, and that we needed to find other areas of non-correlated return that were attractive. So the driving force to it was diversification. Once one had gone through the diversification door, i.e. find something that's not correlated with real estate, then the thinking was all about purpose and long-term sustainability. And the thought process, I think, really was, you know, which of the world's population-related problems is Grosvenor well-placed to help solve? And where we ended up with that was energy and food, two very obvious world problems that aren't going away and that are only going to become more and more important to address. Why did Grosvenor feel that those two were ones, areas it could potentially address? Well, on the food side, on our rural estates, we've owned farming businesses for longer than most people have ever known about farms. So we have quite a long history there. On the energy side, we've done a certain amount of hydro renewable energy projects, again, on our rural estates, which have quite significant bodies of water and the potential there. So there was a starting, there was a foothold, I suppose, in both those sectors. So that, that's what started us off. We quite quickly realized that energy and food are huge sectors, and we couldn't sensibly keep pursuing both of them. And therefore, we wanted to focus on one, not the other. I won't go into the, to, to the debate. It was more than a flip of a coin that then ended up focusing on food rather than energy. So it's really been a food focus ever since. And that that's the way it, it arose. And I think the way I would summarize the focus, it's to try to improve how food is grown, produced, distributed, and consumed. And those things in the food industry have been very disconnected and by connecting them, we think that there's an opportunity to positively influence human health, the ecosystem, climate change, and other things. And actually, I talk about the real estate industry being a bit backward in terms of innovation. I'd have to say that the food and ag sector is, is similarly, and therefore there's a great opportunity to bring those things together and connect them in a way that hasn't been done before. And Mark, what's interesting to me also, sometimes you hear this uh, notion that, well, you know, the real innovation is going to come from a you know, new you know, it's going to be the small company. The incumbents can't really innovate in these spaces. And yet here you are, you know, 350 plus years old, sort of branching into innovation within the core, branching beyond the core into an area that has huge implications for lifetime well-being. Maybe talk a little bit more on the innovation side, because at the Henderson Institute, you know, we've been studying the power of using the challenge of sustainability to kind of confront the historical way business has been done. And there for driving innovation, products, services, maybe the whole business model, even in portfolio expansions, which I think 
you represent here. So given how deeply sustainability factors into the business, how do you see it sort of unlocking innovation? How do you think about almost using it as a, from a CEO's perspective, kind of a forcing function to get innovation going? That's another great question, Dave. And I think actually, I so agree with you. It's been the key to unlocking a new way of thinking. It really has. And I mean, let me, let me just describe the, the process of actually going out and announcing our carbon net zero target when we did that, whenever it was three years ago. Because at the time we concluded we needed to do that, we had no real knowledge of how we were going to achieve it. And yet, as far as I was concerned, we just needed to figure it out. And at Grosvenor, we've tended to adopt an approach of not going out publicly and saying, we're going to achieve this or that, unless we've got a reasonably good idea of how we're going to get there. We've just not been the sort of company that's gone out and promised the world with no idea of how we've how we're going to deliver it. This one was the first time I've ever in my time at Grosvenor been prepared to say, no, 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 we're going to go out and say it, even though we don't know how we're going to get there, because we must, because society must get there. This challenge is the world's challenge. What was fascinating about that decision and that discussion was that it was just blindingly obvious that the only way we're going to achieve it is by being innovative. Many of the other challenges and targets we've faced over the years, we've not necessarily been had to be very innovative. We've just had to put more capital in or work harder. Or This time, it's very clear, we're not going to achieve this net zero carbon target unless we innovate. So it's actually forced the innovation upon us, as you rightly say. And I think that's been hugely helpful for me as CEO to be able to say to people, look, this isn't something we can debate how, how risky it is or how much time we should spend. We've just got no choice. We've got to go and figure out how we're going to get there by being completely by going about this in a completely different way. I think once people sort of got their heads around that, then it allows you to do everything from recruiting slightly wacky people who perhaps previously we might not have recruited, certainly, to being a bit braver about experimenting with things that we don't quite know whether they're going to work or not, but we've just got to we've got to give it a go. So I think it's unlocked, as you write, it suggests, it's unlocked quite a lot of innovation, innovative thinking and innovative behavior, which would not have been possible had it not been for the sort of lever of sustainability and specifically, in our case, specifically net, net zero carbon. Definitely been very helpful. I w- I'm still not going to suggest that we are anywhere near as innovative as we need to be. I'm quite confident we're not, but it's unlocked it and it's opened the door to it. Mark, if we fast forward a little bit, where's the frontier? in sustainability from your perspective for Grovner. So if we would say you're doing all these things now within the property business, within food and ag tech, if you would sort of put out your biggest ambitions and say the frontier for us, the frontier for our industry, the frontier for Grovner and sustainability is going to be a decade from now. In my mind, I go pretty much straight to carbon, really. And I think what's exciting is that, and really positive and optimistic in a world that is not full of positive and optimistic things at the moment, the technology is already there for us to be able to achieve what we need to achieve you know, as a planet. It's just the leadership and the will and the drive and the need to make it a priority that's lacking. And so that to me is really positive. And from a Grosvenor point of view, again, I'm back to the long-term lens, because we have this great good fortune to be able to look at this through that longer term perspective, it's very simple. You know, if we want to be here, the most important thing in my job is to make sure that I'm doing what I can to ensure that Grosvenor is still here in 300 years, just like they've been here for the last 300 years. And there's only one way I'm going to be able to do that. And that's if I address the, the sustainability agenda, you know, front and center, full on, head on. And that is something I can do because of the long term perspective. But I think it's something we've all got to do with or without that perspective. 
And so I think the fact that the technology is there to address it now, through all the different things that we're, we've been talking about, whether it's building construction materials, whether it's the technology required to operate buildings from an energy point of view efficiently, whether it's on the farming and food and ag side, I mean, the technology is now there. And it, it's amazing how fast that's become available to us. So I think to me, the frontier is being able to harness that technology and be able to achieve these hugely ambitious aims within what feels like quite a short period of time, you know, 2030, 2040. That's what I would look to. And I would hope that we were going to be able to say, yeah, we did achieve that net zero target, even though we had no idea how we were going to get there. And we thought it was horribly ambitious. I'm pretty optimistic that we, and I hope it's no good just Grogner doing it, that, that others will, will really embrace this and see it for what it is, which is a fantastic opportunity for humanity as well as for business. Mark, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask a bit more on the people side of your organization. You know, clearly you're an operator, you're also an investor, you're also a new business builder, and all of those things, you know, take this extraordinary engagement from talent and an ability to attract and retain and develop, you know, a diverse and broad set of of people. Maybe if, if you could share with our listeners a little bit about your view as to the role of the diversity and inclusion and equity in the business, the way you've thought about the uh, workforce and how purpose has been joined up with your ambitions around people to sort of give you an equation you're happy with when it comes to how people feel and work inside Grovner. Well, I think the first thing to say is that from a recruitment point of view at the entry level, I'll put it, you know, graduate level or young people joining, there's no two ways about it. It's been essential. I mean, it's not why we've done, it's not why we've done any of this stuff, but but by doing some of these things and and focusing on them, there's no question that we've made ourselves more interesting and attractive to the younger generation who regard these things to be, quite rightly, not sort of optional nice to haves when they look at employment options, but requirements, absolute requirements in the way that you know, my generation didn't. I mean, we should have done, but we didn't. That, I think, is is the first thing I'd say. So we're very clear that that's part of the recruitment hook, I suppose. And, you know, we, of course, we, we we want to make the most of that. I think if I've understood correctly, Dave, your question, though, more is around perhaps diversity. Again, to be critical of our, of our own industry, the, the real estate property industry lacks diversity, uh, no question about it, in pretty much whichever way you measure that. And, of course, the trouble with diversity is it means different things to different people. Well, what, is, what does it mean or what do I think it, it means in terms of Grosvenor? Well, it means having different perspectives and, and having different perspectives creates the sort of intellectual tension that you need in order to make good decisions. And you won't get a diversity of perspective unless you're prepared to look at all sorts of different backgrounds. That having been said, I might as well say I am strongly allergic to positive discrimination of any kind. The idea that you then set targets, which I know... Many governments, including the UK government, seem to be quite keen on. Personally, I think is a very, very, very bad mistake. But anyway, that's maybe not relevant to your question. But I mean, I think trying to bring different perspectives in is an essential part of being successful in business, and particularly now with the sort of challenges we face. And our earlier conversation about the need to be innovative and and have some, I think I said quirky or wacky, I can't remember what word I used, people join to help us. That that's that's exactly what why it's important, because we've got to have people from all sorts of different perspectives to help us solve some of these problems. Mark, one of the things I I didn't put in the questions, but it's reminding me maybe if there's something you'd like to say about the role of sort of partnerships or collaboration with other companies or 
other developers in achieving any of these targets? Does that come into your thinking at all? Or if there's something you'd like to say about sort of industry statesmanship, I mean, in some ways, one of the things that for somebody like Grosvenor, yeah, you know, you have this weight of both legacy and purpose and stability. In some ways, you, you know, it's it's almost the place I would go if I wanted to to find a statesperson to lead the way an industry was thinking about things. I don't know if either of those things you would like to talk uh, say something about. Well, you're very flattering again, David. I mean, I think, how does Grosvenor view its role in relation to the industry? Yes. I mean, I think we regard it as part of our obligation and duty as a long-term significant player in the real estate sector, particularly in the UK, but actually also in in other markets, Canada, US, continental Europe, Asia, um, to share knowledge, to encourage others to be involved in committees and councils, to, as you say, collaborate with those who 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 might need some of the, who might benefit from some of the work we've done, but of course also to learn from them. And you know there are many bodies that represent that. Urban Land Institute is a particularly good example, perhaps ULI on the property side. But more generally, as far as partnership, I think it's probably fair to say that we've done a lot in partnership. Actually, we've done probably more than many. We we certainly the property side since the early 1950s, we've been in partnership with institutional and private capital sources, not because we had to be. But because actually we felt it was a good discipline for us to put ourselves in alongside others, to have the challenge of meeting the performance requirements that they've that, they, that we've set with them. You know, being a private organization, not having outside shareholders, not having analysts crawl all over our accounts, thank goodness, because most of them don't understand what we're talking about anyway, it does mean that we're vulnerable to not being challenged enough by outsiders. And I think having partnerships has been a very useful proxy or substitute for that, where we've learned just as much as hopefully we've been able to share with others. So I'm not sure I'm really answering your question, David, but that's my philosophy on partnerships. No, no, that's quite good. That's quite good because it struck me that some will be listening to this and wondering, what well, you know, do these guys partner? Are they trying to do it all on their own? So I just wanted to work okay. in a few right. of those comments good. that can be selected. But Mark, that was very, very rich in terms of discussion. And I think the combination of kind of the history as well as, you know, the diversity of businesses as well as this long-term perspective really will make this discussion sort of unique in the series that we have, with many being quite traditional CEOs locked into much shorter term returns that would just love to hear some somebody say, no, no, you can have courage, you can have courage here, right? Step out. So well done, really well done. This podcast was part of our series on building competitive advantage in a sustainable world. For more information about this and other research topics, follow the BCG Henderson Institute's research online at bcghendersoninstitute.com and follow our podcast series on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.